We solemnly swear we're up to no good. Hi, I'm Gary Roby. I'm Victoria Laguna. And we're the hosts of Harry Potter Minute, the fan podcast where we overanalyze the Harry Potter movies one magical minute at a time. Join us as we argue about whether or not McGonagall would meow at Dumbledore. She wouldn't. As we ponder just how much Harry's fortune is worth. Just $40. As we guess how much mileage one gets out of an Ollivander wand. 100,000 jinxes. As we detail the ins and outs of Hogwarts Castle. It's only a model. Join us Monday through Friday, only from DuelingGenre.com. Mischief Managed. Dueling Genre. Everyone and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joe Dorowski. This week we are discussing Kenton from the graphic novel White Sand by Brandon Sanderson. So Todd, this is one of your final picks. We are in your final countdown till your last episode, except when we bring you back after you retire. <laughs> um, but we are doing kind of a run of, of things that you had hoped to get to. And I had never read White Sand before you said, I want to do this graphic novel. So what brought you to the graphic novel White Sand? My Hoopla app on my phone. <laughs> Describe I, uh, Hoopla. 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 It's the, uh, it's the digital app that our library, it's like the digital database that our library uses. And um, Oh, so it's like Joseph's Overdrive. Producer like Andrew Overdrive. jumping in. <laughs> yes. yes. It, it's like Overdrive. And uh, anyway, it, I was just sort of browsing around to see what was available. And they had this um, graphic novel from Brandon Sanderson. And I thought, oh, I would like to read that. And then I knew that we had an open slot for a graphic novel coming up. And I thought, well, let's talk about this so that I have an excuse to read it. And so I did. <laughs> <laughs> so this was your first time reading it as well? Yes. Yep. And I just read the first volume. There's, there's uh, three volume slated and two have been published and the third is slated for soon i think i don't think it has a release date or at least i couldn't find one i was looking it up so like oh, you i've read forth, forthcoming yeah i've read the first volume but not yet the second volume so oh, maybe it, go maybe it won't be soon <laughs> i've got volume one june 2016 volume two february 2018 volume three forthcoming i mean it's about but a with two... brandon sanderson it, it will happen I mean, we'll get to this in the trivia, but this is an adaptation of a full unpublished novel that he had written. So the whole story was down and uh, Rick John, uh, Rick Hoskin is adapting the unpublished novel into this graphic novel. So yeah. I, I maybe uh, I mean, that was about what, 18 months between the, mm -hmm. the first and second. So we're, we're only, uh, you know, six or seven months beyond the second one being published. So I don't think we're off schedule yet. No, we're, I really don't think that he misses very many deadlines. <laughs> I don't understand it, but he doesn't. I know. Well, as we've uh, kind of said, White Sand was written by Brandon Sanderson and adapted into a graphic novel by Rick Hoskin. And it has art by Julius Gopez and colors by Ross A. Campbell and letters by Marshall Dillon. And it tells the story of Kenton, who is training to be a sand master which think like Avatar The Last Airbender, um, but what, what, is it an earthbender? Is that what they are in that one? Yeah, they're kind of like, he's kind of like an earthbender, but okay. only, he can only manipulate sand. But just sand. Uh, and fortunately, he lives on a planet that's covered with sand. Yes, think Tatooine. Oh, convenient. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or at least the section of the planet we see uh, is very Tatooine-esque. Uh, or uh, what's the, the planet on Dune? I'm trying to remember now. I just remember like oh House gosh, of Trades and stuff totally like that. And do. Something, Someone's yelling something like their Uraka right now. Or something like that. Yeah. All right, Todd, you look this up while I finish up this brief, <laughs> this brief summary. Uh, so Kenton is training to be a Sandmaster and he is the son of kind of the head of the Sandmasters. But Kenton has always been a bit of a disappointment when it comes to sand bending skills, but not when it comes to grit and determination. 
uh and he uh he's training for this and then he he takes a test to become a sandmaster and despite being very weak in his sand bending skills which is not called sand bending but that's what i kind of inevitably thought of it as <laughs> uh he he succeeds and at the ceremony where he's going to become an official sandmaster there is an ambush and his entire tribe or the group of sandmasters are killed it's just a complete massacre and then he wakes up and has an adventure and this is volume one of the trilogy, as we mentioned, and it was published in 2016 by Dynamite Press. Arrakis or Arrakis is the Arrakis. planet. Arrakis, that's what it was. Well, some trivia about White Sands. Um, Brandon Sanderson, uh, he has a, a long, well, I mean, it's not too long. It's a page long intro at the beginning where he kind of tells a little backstory. And he says the story for White Sands or the idea for White Sand is what started his writing career. Um, he was on a Mormon mission in South Korea and he had an idea in his head for a story about a group that is traveling through a desert and they encounter a hand sticking up out of the sand and they dig down and find someone still alive. And that was like <laughs> the seed of an idea that he couldn't let go. Um, and with that uh, germ of the idea that wouldn't leave him, uh, eventually, later on in his life, he he wrote his first kind of draft of a novel, which was White Sand. And he describes it as not very good, and one-third Dune, one-third Les Miserables, and one-third Wheel of Time. Because he <laughs> couldn't quite, as a young writer, get away from you know his influences. Uh, I, I don't know if you, anyone listeners are familiar, he has since gotten away from just recycling other people's ideas. Um, so later on, after he those wrote six... Good, uh, those are pretty good founts, though. Like, if you have to dip from a well, those are pretty good wells to be dipping from. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so later on, after he wrote six novels, and this was before he had published or sold any novel to a publisher. So he'd written, he went on and wrote six novels. He said, I got to go back to that white sand idea. And he revisited it and completely redid the thing, which as he said, like with more mature writer questions about like world building and character arcs and things. And he liked this new revised version more. Um, and as our listeners, I would imagine are, are aware Sanderson eventually got published um, <laughs> a lot. He's published quite a lot since then, but he always felt like white sand was his best unpublished novel, but he couldn't find a home for it. And then uh, the comic book publisher dynamite reached out to him maybe after they noticed his name on every fantasy bestseller. And they asked him if he had any un unpublished ideas he would like to turn into a graphic novel. And he said, yes, <laughs> I've got my favorite unpublished novel already written. And Rick Hoskin adapted his novel into uh, the graphic novel script and Julius Copas drew it. And that is the story of white sand. I was, I thought well, that was a very interesting story when I read the, his little intro. It's um, I it, it I I think it's interesting that he says that he considers it one of his best. It's definite, but it, because it definitely to me still feels um like I, I don't know, like early Sanderson or something. <laughs> like like it's not as grand as some of what he does later, like in like Way of Kings and. Yes. And I, I mean, some of that is, uh, you know, we, we, we associate Sanderson with basically 1000 page novels of world building, that right? Interconnect and interweave and Bob in and out. And I don't know that the graphic novel is the best medium for that kind of storytelling. Yes. Um, which I, I, I mean, I love the grand narratives of Marvel comics and DC comics, but even then the, the monthly comic book is very different than the graphic novel where you just trying to get it all out in one, or in this case, kind of three volumes. Yeah, and that's and, exactly what I told Andrew. He said, what do you think about this? And I said, I'm not sure that the graphic novel is Brandon Satterson's medium. Yeah, um, which, uh, I, I mean, I just had a really long conversation with students when we were talking about the graphic novel Mouse, and we, we had talked about other mediums that do Holocaust stories or have done Holocaust stories in film and television mm -hmm. and uh, novels. And we talked about, like, the strengths of each one. And when you're identifying the strengths of the different mediums, it's not saying one is better than the other. It's that there are literally things that the different mediums of storytelling do differently. And right. um, that some stories are going to fit better within different constraints. Yep. And in this case, maybe a storyteller can work better with a different kind of storytelling. Um, I think the, there's some really good ideas in White Sand, but it wasn't my favorite graphic novel I've read. Certainly not my favorite Brandon Sanderson that I've read. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Are you done with trivia? Sorry. <laughs> I am. Those, I, I, there was not a whole lot of trivia online about White okay. Sand. Uh, right. Well, I guess I should say um, Brendan Sanderson's 
uh, novels all do they all or do they just mostly tie into his kind of grand Cosmere I think universe? Almost all of them do. And this one is meant to be part of the Cosmere universe. So yeah. I don't know what that means exactly <laughs> when I, cause I haven't read all of his books. So I don't know. Like, is it just that there's a few threads that you can kind of say, Oh, this is happening in the future of this other, you know, but somewhere else in the galaxy. I don't know what it means um, exactly, but he has a grand narrative universe that he's building and white sand is included within that. Yeah. I think what it means is so, um, that they're all part of the same, uh, universe. So he he says they're all part of the same cosmology. They share the fundamentals of magic and cosmology, meaning origin of the universe. Okay. So but they're on different planets. They take and, place on different, different planets, and each planet will have its own kind of system of magic and uh, unique elements. They also take place at different uh, times, uh, I think. Um, but the idea is that they uh, that there is. And the origin of the universe is the same for all of these, which means that there are th- things that connect them. And one of them is um, there's a character that shows up in, I think, almost all of his Cosmere stories. Uh, and sometimes he has a different name, and it's um, it's kind of fun to like try to identify who he is and figure out what his role is. And so they they are connected more than more than you would think. Like, I mean, you can read White Sand and you don't have to have read anything else from Brandon Sanderson. You can get the story easily. But if you had read the other, have read the other stuff, then there will be little tiny nuggets in it that connect it to other, uh, other stories. And, um, and they're not always super obvious because they have to do with cosmology and not just narrative. So. That's what it is. Okay. So if you are a fan of Brandon Sanderson's novels and his Cosmere universe, you probably want to check out White Sand. Yep. All right. Uh, Before we move on, listeners, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening and especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would also like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least $1 per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and give monthly updates on our fantasy box office. Uh, Spoilers, I'm winning. (laughs) Still, I cannot believe believe it. (laughs) I had a billion dollar lead. One billion dollars. A billion dollar lead has vanished, and I'm hanging on to a now $40 million lead. Uh, It's It's all incredible. Astounding. (laughs) It really has helped you out. Uh, 40 million is, I I don't know. I like Hotel Transylvania and Mamma Mia. And there's a lot of films that have uh, the Meg. The fact that I, that I picked Slender Man instead of the a Quiet Place is really hurting me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. And, uh, and now we're ready for your synopsis, Joe. Kenton is the son of the leader of the Sandmasters. Talented Sandmasters can manipulate, well, sand. Uh, They magically turn it into ribbons and think of kind of like living tendrils that they can control and move and reshape. And they do other stuff with sand as well. But mostly we're going to be focusing on the ribbons in the story. Sadly, Kenton has only ever managed to make one strand after years of training. And it's pretty pitiful and disappointing. And he's kind of a sad, (laughs) sad figure. Though he still has a fire burning to prove himself, uh, despite the fact that his talent isn't really showing um and despite his father's insistence that he not take this the the test kenton is determined to pass a trial to become a full sandmaster um his father kind of says you you can't like you're, not, you're really not good enough <laughs> legitimately <laughs> and and kenton is, is kind of like well i'm going to show you and he's like no you have to be able to make at least three ribbons to go do this test and he's like well i'm gonna go do it with one uh you and the test involves exploring a super dry craggy section of the desert and finding five hidden spheres um and this usually takes lots of sand ribbons uh to accomplish uh particularly the last sphere is hidden over this kind of sandy area and there is a giant sand monster thing that comes out of it and you won't believe this but kenton does it he finds 
all five spheres. And then he actually finds a sixth when he kills the sand monster, which he wasn't actually supposed to do. Um, <laughs> like we needed that. Now we can't ever test anybody ever again. <laughs> it's like, it's been sorry. Testing us for <laughs> That's where we said. Uh, and interesting Sandra because Aro. he kills it with his sword. Right. He carries yeah, a like, sword mo- and they're, they're like, everybody's sort of like, uh, like face palming, you know, like I can't believe this guy carries a sword. When we have magic to manipulate sand, and yet uh, he doesn't. Yeah, so um, kind of grudgingly, now his father has to make him a full sandmaster, and there's this formal gathering of their people, and part of the ceremony involves all of the sandmasters drinking from this common goblet that gets passed around, but there's one sandmaster who is being demoted and is kind of being um, moody about everything, and he refuses to participate in that ceremony. Uh, and because... Uh, Kenton is not yet a Sandmaster. He doesn't drink either. This will matter in a moment. Suddenly, they are attacked by these kind of barbarians that have all this painting over their bodies, but they're Sandmaster, so they should be able to handle this. But something is off with all of them. They can't quite use their magic right, and it ends up being just a massacre. Kenton manages to help some, but in the end, he is buried in a wave of sand, and when he wakes up, everyone else is dead. And then he wanders into a tent that was still standing, and he just collapses there. Uh, now, two men enter the tent, and there's some things that are different about these men. Most of the, everyone we've seen up to this point has been white, uh, but these men are black, and also their clothes very differently. The Sandmasters all were kind of vaguely this, this vague, timeless, pseudo-Middle Eastern, gauzy white outfits to protect from the sun and the sand. Uh, these men are dressed one is in a wearing a full suit and tie and the other one has an overcoat on over button down shirt and they find Kenton in the tent and they wake him up and they call him a day cider and they're speaking this foreign language that is called dynastic but Kenton understands it uh, because we're going to find out that Kenton uh, his mom was a night cider which is where they speak dynastic so he's actually um, you know the, the, the child of two worlds you know the, the day side <laughs> and the night side um, and then a duchess enters the tent and just think Beyonce in full Beyonce mode as she walks in. Yeah, she <laughs> would not really be surprised. <laughs> That's awesome. It, it's like the best it, description it, you could give of her. <laughs> I would not be surprised if Beyonce was the model that the artist looked at, like yeah. for, for reference. Oh, totally. Like a reference guide. Yeah, she is. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> The Darksiders reveal that they're low on water, and Kenton shows them a trick that all Daysiders know. If you splash a little water on the sand, this vine pops up to absorb the the moisture, and you can grab the vine, pull it up, and cut it, and it has water inside of it that you can harvest. So uh, the Duchess and her men, who are professors named Akron and Cinder, reveal that they're here on a scientific expedition uh but their guides betrayed them and now they're kind of lost (laughs) and they just kind of wandered across this field of all the dead bodies and kenton agrees to take them to the nearest city which is gonna be a few days away on their journey um the nightsiders express their cynicism about daysiders beliefs and traditions including this idea this crazy idea of sandmasters um and kenton just kind of nods along with them and doesn't say anything uh, they get to a trading post where Kenton tries to trade for supplies and he sees people with the same markings of the, as the group that slaughtered his people. And then a pickpocket tries to steal his money. And when the pickpocket does that, he pulls out a sash that reveals that he's a sandmaster. Now, this doesn't mean anything to the Duchess and her men, um, but as they're traveling to another city, they are ambushed by the barbarians. So the barbarians had uh, had spotted the, the sash and knew what it meant. And so they uh, stage another ambush. Kenton tries his sand mastery, but he can't seem to even generate one ribbon. Fortunately, Professor Cinder has a gun. <laughs> which is something that nobody on the day side has ever seen. And it ends the ambush pretty quickly. Uh, and now they travel on to the big city where, um, Kenton and on the on this journey, Kenton learns that the Duchess was betrothed to a man named Gevin, and Gevin had come over to Dayside and he disappeared and is assumed dead. Uh, we get to the city and there's this brief like side adventure, like all of a sudden our the story's point of view shifts to this kind of bounty hunter law enforcement woman who is um, running after this man. And uh, then this mysterious brooding guy steps out of the shadows and helps her. And then he walks away. Uh <laughs> And I, I get the feeling Brandon Sanderson likes his mysterious brooding men yes. as side characters in his stories. <laughs> um, and then we, we jump back to, um, to the group that we've been following. Um, and 
there is kind of a sand, I think it's called the city of the, or the Sandmaster city, but it's kind of like just the, imagine a giant temple and Kenton leaves the duchess and the professor is kind of saying, I've gotten you to the city. I need to go check on my people. And he goes over to the Sandmaster temple to see if there's any survivors. And there he finds an old friend, kind of someone who was being taught with him. And this old friend tells him that they're about to make Dryle, who is the guy who was going to be demoted and never drank from the goblet. Uh, they're about to make him the leader of the surviving um, Sandmasters because he is the highest ranking survivor. Most of the survivors had never passed the test to become Sandmasters even. So uh, Kenton is kind of angered by this and he puts on the sash uh, that his that, that he was going to be given by his father uh, back at the ceremony. And uh, after he puts it on, suddenly he is able not only to do the one ribbon that he could do before, but now he's actually able to generate three ribbons of sand. Um, and he goes to this meeting of some sort of leaders. Uh, it's a little vague to me, like what the authority of this group is. Yeah. Was it clear to you, Todd? No. Okay, he goes to a group of leaders who are saying, we're going to dissolve the, it's called the Diem of the Sandmasters, the D-I-E-M, um, or kind of the guild is what I kind of thought of it. Yeah, we're going so to dissolve I, it because... I think my best understand, my best guess at how this thing works is that the city is run by the leadership of the different guilds. They call the them the different professions. professions, right? Right. And so it's basically like it's kind of run by the Chamber of Commerce is how right. i see it and they we find out later there are seven different professions yeah there's a count there's a council and they vote on things and they kind of seem to be running the show the sandmasters and they are seem to be about to say we're going to dissolve all the sandmasters because well you're incompetent you were all killed <laughs> there's too few of you and um, because the sandmasters had grown super powerful but that they weren't they, they, they were a bit aloof and separate and and from the rest of the these leaders right yeah they had a they had a policy to never help anybody which is it's a rough policy not a great policy <laughs> to have if you're trying to you know build bridges with your neighbors um kind of like the wizards with the muggles yeah like these super magical uh sand wizards won't ever use their power to to build things or except unlike the wizards in harry potter everyone knows about them yes so they see this as a chance to sort of cut them off and they take it. Okay. So now we go back to that law enforcement woman. We find out that her name is senior tracked AS AIS. And she finds this man who's been tortured and um, she realizes that he was an aide to this merchant who's been missing. And the guy says that someone named Sherazan did this to him. And the, the, um, woman Ais, uh she gets this very determined look and says she's gonna find sherazan who she thinks is probably also going by the name nilto i think was the name like she she puts those two together right away now the duchess we go back to her she goes to an area of town that's kind of like just imagine little dark side um there's <laughs> lots of people from her country her her side of the planet i'm assuming because day side and dark side but there's lots of people there that have lived in this kind of created this blended day side night side culture or dark side culture and she's taken down like someone recognizes her and takes her down to this hidden chamber and her the professors that are with her are told to stay stay out and she goes down and the door opens and she sees someone in there and she gasps and we cut away uh we go back to kenton and there, and when we get to Kenton, the council unanimously votes to dissolve the Sandmasters Guild. So he, he like made his arguments, you know, gave his heartfelt speech and it did nothing. Now we go back to the Duchess and she recognizes the man as someone named Lotin, who was an infamous traitor who was executed, she thought. And he has a massive scar on his neck. So I guess they tried to execute him <laughs> and it didn't take. It's like if they sewed nearly Headless Nick's head back on. That's what his scar looks like. <laughs> yes. Uh, and this man, Loten, reveals that he met Gavin, the Duchess's missing betrothed, while he was uh, while Gavin was on a quest on the day side for some sort of weapon that could only be found there. And Loten, though, is annoyingly vague. <laughs> like, he kind of says this, but he's like, I'm not going to tell you anything else. And she asks questions. He's like, I'm not going to tell you anything else. Uh, <laughs> and then this um, guy that looks like a walking mummy... <laughs> Like just lots of bandages and kind of like a zombie like face. He arrives and his name is Nilto, which is the name of that guy that the, uh, that Ais was going to be looking for. And when Nilto arrives, the Duchess is kind of excused from the room. <laughs> like we're done. And as she's leaving, professor Cinder had been waiting on the other side of the door. And when the door opens, he sees Loten inside and he draws his gun to shoot him right away. But the Duchess stops him. 
Now, Kenton goes back to the Sandmaster's Temple. And one thing I did like about the Sandmaster's Temple is because um, Sandmasters can make these ribbons and they can float on them in the air. Um, <laughs> there's, it, it's a very tall building, but there's no access points. You have to float on sand to get up to the rooms, um, to the different le- levels. So like uh, he says, like his father had the, the highest room and he's never been there. <laughs> Den, uh, Kenton has never been there. Um, and, and he goes to there and he sees Dryle is about to be made the leader of these survivors, which were just dissolved as a group, but they're maybe they're going to go be their own group. Some of the politics got a little vague at this point. Um, but uh, Kenton reveals Dryle is not the highest ranking survivor because Kenton was also made a Sandmaster. Dryle flies up on his sand ribbons and you've got to be able to generate enough to be able to do that. So Dryle doesn't think Kenton's going to be able to do this, but then Kenton demonstrates that he can to the amazement of everyone. And uh, Dryle and Kenton kind of have this tete-a-tete up high floating on their sand ribbons where Dryle accuses Kenton of betraying the Sandmasters and murdering uh, his own father. And when he says that something clicks and Kenton realizes that these new powers are at actually his father's like his father somehow gave them to him when he died uh he doesn't quite understand it but he thinks just in his death somehow his father kind of betrayed you know just uh bequeathed his powers to kenton and that's why he can suddenly do these three ribbons whereas before he could only do the one um and kenton instead uh you know dryles just made this accusation and kenton says no you're the traitor <laughs> and then he beats him in a sandal they do this quick sandal up there and dryle like crashes down to the ground and he just walks away and everyone just kind of watches him walk away <laughs> i think a few follow him it's a little little awkward uh and then kenton goes and takes his father's old room in the temple and the duchess wants to ask the the city leaders if they met her betrothed when he was here and there are seven profession masters who are the leaders of the city and she goes to each one and is basically turned away with varying levels of rudeness and doesn't really meet anyone and the last one she's going to try and meet is she has to make the hike to go visit the sandmaster's temple so she can meet the leader of the sandmasters and when she gets there she is shocked to see that kenton who never told her he was a sandmaster is the leader of the sandmasters the end (laughs) that's where volume one ends well then did you mention um that the the city council the chamber of commerce people they gave him two weeks he made this uh, no. he made this interesting argument. Yeah. So they said, we're going to dissolve this whole thing. You're done. And then he said no. And he he used his knowledge of the law to sort of uh, trap them like into bureaucratic loophole. Yes. Yeah, he found this. He found this loophole that forced them to give him two weeks. And so they said, that's fine. You have two weeks. But when you come back in two weeks, it has to be a unanimous vote uh, to keep you. Yes. to overturn yeah. our previous decision yeah. and it seems it was like, the lady, no. like the lady that uh is in charge of it she kind of seems like she's on his side but she didn't want to be the only one so basically he has his work cut out for him because now he has to convince all seven of the guilds to vote for him and, or the other six guilds um to vote for reinstating and so he's on this like PR sort of campaign. He tells them, um, he tells the guys, we need to build ladders so that people can get to the different levels of the of the place without floating on sand. Um, <laughs> it's kind of rude to invite <laughs> them over and then wave at them from way up high. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so he's going to start building bridges for the first time uh, of the Sandmasters. Yes. Seems. Yeah. So. Uh, we we sort of touched on it earlier. I think um, I think one of the things that that I missed, knowing this is Brandon, uh, Brandon Sanderson's story, and we've talked about how careful he is with his systems of magic, and that it's one of the things that really uh, makes his writing stand out. Um, it's just hard to do visually. It, it looks great visually to see these guys with the sand swirling around them, and uh, but but you don't understand any of the mechanics of how it works. And I can imagine this uh, being narrated by Brandon Sanderson in a way that talks about the, the push and the pull and the relationship between strain and how much energy has to be divided. Right. (laughs) And, um, and just like we said, when we talked about Neil Gaiman, how it's just like kids playing in a sandbox and nobody cares about how any of the rules work and that we love that about Neil Gaiman. But I think that I really like, the care that Brandon Sanderson puts into the system of magic. And it just, it's just completely absent here because uh, largely uh, we're, we're privy to some of the thoughts of some of the characters, but not the kind of um, third person omniscient narration that we get 
typically in in these stories. So, um, yeah. One one other thing that kind of stood out to me is I imagine there is quite a bit of compression that has had to happen mm-hmm. to transform his unpublished novel into three graphic novels that I, I'm going to guess is about a hundred pages. Um, it's not numbered, but you know, somewhere in there and with a graphic novel, I mean, there are some of these pages that only have one image and, you know, one, one box <laughs> of, of dialogue. Um, probably the most, the busiest pages are only going to have, let's see, this is one of the busier pages. It only has five panels or uh, six panels. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, maybe a dozen word balloons. Um, and, and like, just, I can imagine that scene, which here is six panels and a dozen word balloons is, you know, five pages, right. <laughs> Brandon Sanderson's prose, um, describe it, giving all the details. And a lot of the details are there visually, but it's a very different way of consuming mm-hmm. the story, um, versus the details that are given. And I think because of that, some things that maybe work better in his long, longer novels feel less sophisticated in this, like, um, Dryl being the traitor, it it felt pretty obvious. (laughs) I don't know if that was supposed to be a surprise, but I think in a novel where you're reading so much, you could actually like forget it until he reminds you that there was that that, one guy. Do you think that he really is the traitor? Uh, That's uh, he was the only one who didn't drink. So uh, like right when he didn't drink, I assume that, I mean, maybe there's a a bait and switch in the second one. I feel like there Um, might be, I think there might be because, okay, but I was going to say like in a novel, you're the traitor. And then he says, no, you're the traitor. I'm like, I don't think either of these guys is a traitor. I think somebody else is. I think they could work. But even as a red herring, I think in the novel, you could read so much and kind of forget about the guy Mm -hmm. until you get reminded that there was someone who didn't drink. And then you're like, oh, I'm putting the pieces together. But in this graphic novel, it's, you know, you're reading the whole graphic novel in probably a 20 minute stretch. Right. And, uh, you know, the pieces uh, don't get lost. And I love that in novels when you can kind of forget about a piece, but it was also significant enough that you do remember it when it's time to remember Mm -hmm. it because the author like just shines the light back on it. Um, And I don't think I ever lost track of any of the threads enough to be surprised by any of the twists that come. Or even like with Name of the Wind, when you you go back and reread it and you're like, oh man, there's so much here that I did not see before, but... Uh, but it's so important to later stuff and when it's so mm-hmm. condensed like this. Um, what do you think of the art? I liked the style. I will say some of the panel layouts. Um, there's some kind of uh, basic um, panel layout design issues that the artist fell into where they had to add arrows to guide your yes. eyes. So um, comic book art, you've got to think about how audiences read top to bottom, left to right. And if you're going to be doing any kind of tricky panel layouts, you got to make sure there's still a natural flow. And there were a few pages where the flow was not natural and they actually inserted arrows to guide you and say, go from this panel to that one, because you're not going to make the right choice without these arrows, which it it felt a bit amateurish to have to get the arrows in. Uh, Like at this point in comic book uh, theory and discussion, we've reached a point where panel layout feels like it should be an entry level thing for being the artist on the graphic novel. That, that you're like not going to make. I feel like it wasn't even that necessary, like to put the arrows in. Like I can figure. Um, this yeah, out. but but even with, uh, I mean, you don't even want a half second of hesitation. Like Scott McCloud talks about it in Understanding Comics. Like even the half second of hesitation, where you got to decide, wait, is it this one or that one? You're out of the story. Um, and I, I think there would have been that half second, even if you could have figured it out without the arrows. And so yeah. they give you the arrows to guide you, but then the arrows end up pulling you out as well. Um, but there are tricks you can do uh, to even if you have a panel layout that leaves that question, right. like if you, just the position of your word balloons can guide the eye to yeah. the right, right next panel. So I would have preferred seeing them move word balloons around instead of dropping in an arrow. Because um, if, if your word balloon like overlaps the two panels, you're naturally going to go from the one where the tail of the word balloon begins to the next panel that it's overlapping. Yeah, I felt um, like with, the, uh, the arrows... <laughs> It kind of reminded me of the, do you remember the first time that you watched a football game and they had the first down line marked in yellow? Yes. And I remember thinking, that's dumb. I know where the, I know where the first down line is. I don't need somebody to put a yellow line. Uh, and now I, if there's not a yellow line, I'm like, wait, where's the yellow line? Where's the yellow line? <laughs> How far are they going? Yeah. Um, I thought the line work was really good. I, uh, the, yes. the coloring felt like when I, at the end of the book, when they have just the uh like the the drafts and the the uncolored mm-hmm. line work oh that looks so much really better really good yeah oh yeah 
And it, um, if anyone uh, listeners are familiar with comic art, kind of think uh, the pencils of Lionel Francis Yu. He's um, a comic artist who's done stuff for both Marvel and DC. And that's what the line work definitely reminded me of. But something in the inking and the coloring, I think, took away some of that quality. Mm-hmm. A little bit. Um, and also just with the coloring, uh, like one thing that kind of bugged me was our main character is obviously supposed to be like half white, half black. But I felt like his skin tone shifted enough <laughs> like throughout <laughs> where I'm like what? I, I lost track of which one was him. <laughs> uh, and and I felt like his skin tone like changed kind of dramatically sometimes from one page to the next. Um, like in the, in the first pages when he's arguing with his dad, he's pretty pale. And then at the end uh, when he's now the kind of the leader i think it's, it's gotten a lot darker uh-huh. um by that point okay so enough enough uh enough nits picked yeah so what do you like about this um i even though i i wish it was a bit more fleshed out i do already love like the world that's being built uh-huh. <laughs> like, and i love yeah uh well like we said a lot of this feels compressed and everything but i love the way some of these things get introduced where like all of a sudden there's these people walking to the tent and it's kind of like, Oh, he's a day cider. <laughs> and like until that point, there was no mention of the world, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that there was a day side or a night side and you just kind of have to, or a dark side. I mean, uh, but you just kind of have to work out. Well, there is the um, map at the beginning. At the beginning, which it says, says day, side. day side. And then there's a, and then there's an ocean around day side, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like think Australia is, <laughs> is what day side seems yeah. to be. I think it's an interesting premise that there's a planet that one side is always bathed in light. The other is always bathed in darkness. Um, and though, does it make me question immediately? Wouldn't the temperature differential be so great <laughs> that you can only live in the liminal zone, like right on the edge, the horizon of the, you know, the, yeah. the dusk portion. Well, the thing that it makes me think about is um, like for, for h- humans living on earth, which is, you know, People listening. Yeah, all our listeners. People listening so to this far podcast, as, as far as we know. Um, if you're not, ne- let us know. <laughs> the cycles, the cycles that we go through because our planet spins, are really important to, uh, just to our existence. And you think about the seasons, and regardless of where you live, and when the seasons may or may not be, or how much sunlight there is or isn't, or whether um, whether you have really uh, really strongly differentiated seasons, or maybe just a, a rainy season and a, a, a dry season, but that that turning of the Earth it matters to us as humans, and it's it's like baked really deep into who we are, and. Um, and then to think of a planet where that doesn't happen <laughs> and where there's one side that's just always baking and another side that's always in the dark. I, I, it makes me immediately, it immediately makes me wonder like what is baked into their DNA? Yes. And I mean, and again, there are some few hints that show like, obviously this has been thought about. Uh, so like the, um, the dark siders, they, they can't figure out how to tell time on the day side. <laughs> um, and he did, or, or even really tell direction. They say, cause I, on the night side, you'd have stars to, right. To help with direction. And they, they, they're like all turned around when their guide betrays them. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and, and he says, well, you know, the, you, you get used to subtle differences of where shadows are laying basically on the horizon right. <laughs> when you're, when you're on the day side. Um, but they, they, they couldn't process that, you know? So you you know, even what direction you're facing is going to be so like the way you have to um, process that, you know, the information cues from the world around you is going to be so different. Yeah. It's also, I feel like he's playing a little bit with our, um, with our expectations in making the light side, the side that has magic and the dark side, the side that, uh, that has science. I mean, if you're, if you're mm-hmm. looking at like, like a Jungian dichotomy, you would associate the light with logic and reason and the dark with like the subconscious and, you know, powerful, like chaotic, uncontrolled stuff. Um, and it seems like he's flipped that, which is, you know, an interesting thing. Um, it certainly feels like he's thought about stuff and he's presented a world that's interesting just on the face, just because of its cosmology, just because of the way that the earth yeah. is made and, and the, the physics of it, uh, cr- immediately create 
interesting potential for story, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, and I've listened to some of his um, podcast writing excuses, Mm -hmm. which is like 15 minute snippets where he and other uh, professional writers talk about you know, very, they get, you know, they just bounce from writing issue to writing issue. But when mm-hmm. he talks about world building, he's, he always like stresses, you need to think about the impact magic has on every aspect of your world. You know, the, what is it going to do to the economy? What does this do to trade? What right. does this do, you know, to all these other things. And I would imagine he put the exact same amount of thought into <laughs> what does this do if your, your world doesn't rotate <laughs> and there's a, a really hot, sun side and are probably a really cool night side uh-huh. on the other side what do you think about kenton um it, like you said at the beginning like it, some of this feels like kind of early stabs at writing there's a lot that felt familiar about him mm-hmm. and not always in in to me like in uh the best way of like oh this is playing with you know Jungian archetypes it just kind of felt like well okay the the child of two warring sides that's going to end up being the chosen one. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I did like that, you know, even though as you have that expectation, we are told right away, like, Oh, he has no talent. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, so that twist, I did very much enjoy that your chosen one that's going to lead you on the quest is everyone's kind of like disappointed in and expected great things from, and uh, <laughs> he hasn't really uh, lived up to it, but at the same time, we know he's going to live up to it. So even as much as I enjoyed that, I did kind of feel uh, some of this like, mm, I, w- I, w- I wish we had something a little different with him. I liked him. I, I thought that um, I thought the opening scene with the test, I thought was pretty well done. Um, I, I did like it in general, but I felt like this, this I, I had a trouble getting the stakes and like what danger he was in because it went by so fast. Yeah. Like he just said, I'm going to go do this. And then it felt like he was done in five minutes, <laughs> which I get some of this may have been the compression of the novel into this graphic novel, but the, the stakes felt low to me. Yeah. I, I, um, it didn't bother me. The stakes part didn't bother me. It, in some ways it felt like, um, if you see people actually fight, like, like a real fight, not a mm-hmm. choreographed movie fight, like, or if you watch fencing, like at the Olympics, it's over in two seconds. It's like, yeah, it's like, oh, it's done. I, yeah, I, I see what you mean. Like, I want the Olympic, I want the Olympic fencing to be like the Princess Bride fight, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it's not because when you're in a real fight to the death, like one of you is going to die pretty quickly, and so uh, I don't know, maybe it was because of that, it, that it didn't bother me really, but it, it was over really quickly. I just thought it was so interesting that he's like, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this test. And every single person that's there is like, you are going to die <laughs> because you are horrible at this. You are a total disappointment and nobody even <laughs> likes you because you're such a disappointment and yet you continue to like pester us and we just want you to go away and go to like the very lowest cast of these sand movers because you can barely manage like three grains. You're, you're such a disappointment. And you can, you can sense how disappointed his dad is in him and that he had at one time probably held high hopes for him, but there's just not like, there's nothing. And then he goes in with a sword and everyone's like, Oh my gosh, this is so dumb. This kid with the sword. Like, and then and then he he does it and he ends it like pretty quickly and he ends up with the six things um and then i like the way that he uh it it i i feel like the story turns and it becomes less about his ability to be a sandmaster and more about all of these other qualities that he's developed because he was bad at sandbending and i think that that's what's going to make him succeed so it's not like, oh, I wonder if he'll, I wonder if he'll fail because we know he's not going to fail. But the fact mm-hmm. that he's going to be successful, not because he's a great sandbender, but because he was a bad sandbender, he developed the characteristics that are going to make him a better leader. And I think that's something that's going to pay off more in the second and third volumes yes. than what we get in this one. So I, in some ways, like some of the nits that we're picking are because we have an incomplete story at this point. Yeah. But I feel like the promise is there. Like I'm not, I'm not down on this story right now. Thinking, oh, Kenton, he's, uh, this is all formulaic. It doesn't feel super formulaic. Mm-hmm. I, I can't think of a million stories where that's the case. Um, in 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 that sense, it didn't feel 
like it was lifted from something else. And I, and I think Kenton is an interesting guy. Like I'm, I'm interested to see what happens to him. Um, even as I can recognize that like, maybe this isn't the best medium, uh, for a Brandon Sanderson story. Uh, it, it's probably experimental. I don't know that he's going to be dipping back into graphic novel as much. I, I, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see if he thinks, man, this is just a, a rousing success. And now I'm going to do all my stuff in graphic novel form. I'd be shocked. Um, and I, I did like, um, Kenton, like when you have kind of the, the brash underdog who's trying to prove himself, sometimes you expect them to kind of be shouting about how much they belong all the time. Mm-hmm. But I liked that he just kind of, when uh, when the Duchess was there and was like talking about, oh, the you daysiders with your myths about the Sandmasters, I, I think there would have been a temptation to have him say, I am one and like, let me show you. And he's <laughs> just kind of like, yeah, <laughs> just just doesn't really say much about it um, as they go along. And I liked that, uh, you know, I, again, just um, a, a twist that didn't feel out of place, but wasn't what I expected as a reader. Yeah. So I think there's like you're saying, we had some this to pick, but I still enjoyed this. And I very much intend to go get the second volume sure. of the story. I think maybe going back over the story in my mind that um, that scene where he's the lone survivor and there's all of that carnage around him. Like that's a pretty, um, that's going to leave a mark on you. You know, <laughs> there's some trauma that yeah. isn't really dealt with yet in this. Yeah. Um, be, I, I, there, there are there's enough interesting things going on with him um and with the world that the story is i mean the story holds up it's not mm-hmm. I, i'm not like oh this is i you know, i can't read this anymore um i really wish it was just a novel <laughs> I, I, <laughs> which I, I do not want that to be a knock on the art because i quite enjoy like as i'm flipping through this right now um i want to get the artist his name uh julius gopez mm-hmm. uh his um style like he gives so much detail in the clothing yeah and in the backgrounds um and so i think there's wonderful art going on in here i just don't know that it's the greatest medium for telling this story well and and i'm sure that it's also because of where we're coming from right we're coming from a place where we've read a bunch of brandon sanderson's prose and we love it (laughs) and there is something um that gets lost when you change mediums like you were saying there there are certain things that you can only do in prose and when you try to do them in film they don't work as well but there are some things that you can do in film that are way better than things you can do in prose and so you're gonna like win some and lose some when you change the medium uh it's just that Brandon Sanderson is because he is so prolific. Um, there we're so accustomed to a voice and a tone and a structure and uh, the way that these things are done that to see it uh, in a different medium is just kind of jarring to me. And there's a part of me in the back of my mind that's like, oh man, I know what this would be like in in the hands of the master, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh but but on its own as a graphic novel without that it's kind of like when we talked about um doctor strange the the doctor strange movie and it's like if you hadn't seen all the other marvel films and you just somebody just dropped doctor strange out of the of the universe if that had been the first marvel film ever made we would be dying like that would have been the most amazing thing that we had ever seen but because we've seen so many great marvel films and then doctor strange comes out and you're like yeah it's pretty good uh it's it's you know it's no whatever it's not top tier but it, it's good yeah, it's, it's solid good. and that's how i feel about uh, about white sand like it's, it's really not good you sanderson but it's good it's solid yeah and it fits in this world and i'm sure that there would be interesting things and if i was as invested in the cosmere as other uh, as other people i know are then I'm sure there would be tons of Easter eggs and cool things to find and connections with other other books and other worlds and other systems of magic. And um, there's a lot there. Like it, it's 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 an amazing creative endeavor, this Cosmere. Mm-hmm. So go ahead. Um, and I do want like, again, just uh, playing with some of our expectations and fun twists. I loved the entrance of the professors and the duchess. 
Yes. We've been in kind of this, you know, Tatooine-esque, like we said, like all our classic desert pseudo fantasy sci-fi worlds. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and and like we've been in the world where we're like, okay, it's pre-industrial. They're using magic for a lot of things. They got their swords. Uh, and then these characters walk in in their suit and tie. It's like steampunk. <laughs> over- yes. It's like steampunk yeah. Beyonce. <laughs> it's uh maybe we can get that that one panel on our facebook page to show the steampunk yeah, that's Beyonce. Pretty <laughs> um but it was just so expected unexpected where suddenly you have to recalibrate your expectations for the world mm-hmm. um and yet we had been introduced to the world so you know we we'd seen so little of the world so far that you just kind of immediately say okay there's more going on here than just these sandmasters that are out here in the desert doing their their sand trials um and then later on like when you get to the big city you realize oh the sandmasters are weird <laughs> no one no one likes the sandmasters like we just we opened up on them so we thought this was the world uh and you really you, you come to realize you were exploring one small side group within this larger world and there's so many different um, you know, fashions and cultures and languages and, um, you know, d- different ways of doing things than what we've seen the Sandmasters do. Um, and I-, I thought that was handled pretty well. Yeah. And I feel like this is where we see maybe more mature Sanderson um, reworking the story it, because it's so, it's such a, cl- like a cliche um sci-fi fantasy thing to have one planet that where the entire environment is exactly the same and it's it's the classic star wars there's only one environment per planet right but not only in star wars it happens in other places as well well like dune with arrakis yeah for example which predates star wars and um you know john carter of mars for that matter um but to see this it just it feels more developed, um, more mature, sort of more thought out, uh, and and I like that. And and it is it's just so jarring and so awesome when they walk in and you realize, just immediately changes your expectations for the novel. Um, and yes, yeah, and, and then a similar thing happens um, when you when you get to the when it jumps to the the city and you've got uh, that girl running around. Um, what's her name? Ais. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, it's like oh, and okay, you get little dark side. Mm-hmm. I thought <laughs> little dark side was super cool. Uh huh. And, and I also love the way of, they um, about it. it reminded me of uh, Hellboy too when they go into the mm-hmm. into the uh, the uh, market. The yeah, the marketplace. Market, yeah, it was kind of like that. Um, but I also liked the way that like they kind of overtly said like this isn't actually what dark side is like, but it's also not what day side is like. Mm-hmm. Like it's 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 the blend of the two. Yeah, well, it's like going to uh, Mexican town in Detroit. It's not really or Mexico. Or Little Italy in Boston. <laughs> right. It's not really Mexico, but it's way closer to Mexico than anything else around it. And it's a strange – I mean, you can go into a market and get stuff that for sure is not in Mexico, but that you might find in Argentina or uh, Puerto Rico or wherever. Um, it's just a strange mixture of things. And the Spanish that people are speaking isn't really Mexican Spanish, but it's also not really Spanish from anywhere else. It's this sort of uh, unspokenly negotiated mix of stuff that you only find here. And it's awesome. Uh, do you want to talk about uh, the Duchess and the Professors any at all before we we wrap up? Uh, they don't. They're not really in the story very much in this first volume i think that she will be more fleshed out in the in the second volume i would assume mm-hmm. yeah and the professors are fun but they're the kind of fun that you get from side characters that have a, like a role right yeah um you know the they they, they don't have an arc at all um <laughs> in this volume it's, maybe that'll it's come. interesting to me that when she finds out that her boyfriend's dead she's like it doesn't even face her. It doesn't seem like it really phases her. I'm interested to see sort of what is her agenda. And I mean, you, you say that, but Denton doesn't, or uh, Kenton doesn't seem to really be dealing with the massacre of all of his people. We might be uh, in a little bit of like the, the princess Leia and star Wars situation. Yeah. Where, yeah okay. <laughs> Everyone died and we're going to move on. <laughs> and, maybe. And maybe if one mentor dies, then you've really got to focus in and more than that. <laughs> but <laughs> um yeah the uh I, I, maybe the morning practices on this world are a little different than <laughs> earth 
So they're all Stoics. Yes. Um, yeah. So yeah I, that is one thing uh, that you, I mean, you mentioned that art page when you see him standing amongst all the dead of his people. Like it, it is pretty amazing art for this two page layout and just the sea of bodies. And he's the only yeah. one standing um, in, in the midst of the sea of bodies, but he, he does not do any emotional work to deal with this trauma <laughs> throughout yeah. the rest of the story. Yeah. I'm interested to see how it plays out. Mm-hmm. I I don't I don't feel like I have a lot to say about her and the guys that are with her because I just I don't think that there's a lot for us to go on. Just like with the with the uh, tracker, mm-hmm. I feel like there's an interesting start, and I'm like, yeah, she's interesting. I'd like to see where that goes. And she has this interesting yes. conversation with her husband, and the they she's been threatened uh, that somebody's threatening her that they're going to come after her family, and she's like. Uh, you know, people talk, but nothing ever really happens. And he's like, yeah, but your partner just died today. And she's like, yeah, there is that. <laughs> um, again, a- another stoic. But yes, but I feel like it's an interesting start. And I think, uh, you know, I wonder where they're where they're all headed. And I, I want to see um, what happens when they when the gang like really gets together. Yes, you know all these threads are going to intertwine mm-hmm. in ways because um, I mean, when we first get the tracker, it's kind of like, well, this is coming out of nowhere. But then you find out she's tracking the guy that ends up walking into the room where Duchess is meeting mm-hmm. with the old traitor, um, and obviously the, the Duchess and Kenton stories are intertwining. So these are all going to, to intertwine, and um, a lot of this feels like both in terms of character arcs and for these plot points, like these are just teases, <laughs> like, like get, get a little taste right now and it'll be paid off in the second and third volume. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would just say in, in closing on this, um, as we said earlier, I don't think this is, I don't think this is peak Sanderson, but if you are a Brandon Sanderson fan and let's be honest, everybody should be because he's really good at what he does. Um, this is like the, the level what what is it like? The barrier to entry here is super low. This is not yeah. this is not a huge commitment, and you can get another piece of the universe. And so for that, I say like two thumbs up. You know, like give me yes. another give me another cool Brandon Sanderson story that's pretty bite sized, and you know more characters and more world building and part of the Cosmere and like just give me another piece to this puzzle that I'm slowly putting together. Um, I'm really happy with it. And for all the nits that we picked, I like as we've said, I very much intend to go pick up the second volume oh, and yeah. see where this all goes. Absolutely. <laughs> and I'll be excited when the third one comes out. Yeah. And uh, I also think it's pretty awesome that a writer as successful and as big a name in the field as Brandon Sanderson has become, uh, that he realized that like, my first novel wasn't very good, and I reworked it after I wrote six others, and I still wasn't published at that point. Like That is commitment to the craft. Yeah. Uh, and uh, again, just like a little bit of a glimmer of hope for anyone who is trying to write and hasn't found the right publisher for, for their project. Just tell yourself, <laughs> Sanderson had a number of novels before anyone said, Ah, we'll we'll take a uh, you know we'll we'll try this guy <laughs> we'll we'll give it a whirl yeah and and the other thing that's amazing about him is that for as much as he produces I feel like he's a careful writer and that you know that he'll go back and and pick up something and you know dust it off and rework it rework the whole thing and say you know there's a good idea here uh, I'm gonna rework this and try to get it right and make it better and um, that's awesome. I just, I, I think I have a lot of admiration for his productivity, but also like the quality that comes out and the, like that combination, I think, man, he's just like superhuman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I mean, again, just for, for any writers, like maybe that book that you tried to get published that didn't quite work out go go rework it now that you have a more mature eye and worldview and mm-hmm. style like just life is going to help with all of those things and uh go back and revisit it and see see what you can make out of it yeah, absolutely 
All right, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all of the other great Dueling Genre shows, go to to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to go check out episode number 114 when we discussed Brendan Sanderson's novel, Mistborn, or episode number 36 when we talked about Avatar, The Last Airbender. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or us on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Diz Minute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We have really good conversations there. And uh, we would love for you to drop by and say something there anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening. And we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. Okay, uh, Kenton, our protagonist, is the son of the leader of the Sand Masters. And talented Sand Masters can manipulate, well, sand, and they magically. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I'm going to give you a fresh read there, Andrew. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>